for the month of uh, October, for the last several years, we have tried to, to expose ourselves to people that have been important in the history of the Protestant Church and have some connection with the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, they, they don't have to have lived in the, 15, in the 16th century, in the, the 1500s, but had some connection. We've done early church people, we've done American uh, pastors and people, we've done Europeans, and uh, so we're trying to make sure that we are aware that we are not the only ones who has ever, who ever lived. We're, uh, this is not the first generation of Christians, this is not the first generation of people to read the Bible, and we can benefit tremendously from being able to read and grow uh, from these uh, brothers and these uh, sisters. One of the things that, uh, that uh, is important to keep in mind is that the most lasting things that uh, uh, men and women have done that have blessed several generations to write. And that's why it's so important that we learn how to write well, that we can have lasting things Left and say, oh, but we have videos and we have, uh, you know, audio recordings now, and we can do that way. Maybe it hasn't proven to be the case yet, but the pr- writing has been proven to be the one thing that God has used to bless several generations. Uh, one of the reasons why, for example, if you remember, there was these two brothers that eventually went apart because of of, of their theological position in George Whitfield and John Wesley. During their lifetime, George Whitfield was much more of a, he reached many more, pe- many more people than Wesley did, and yet in history, Wesley has reached, reached way more people because Wesley wrote, and uh, Whitfield didn't. As a matter of fact, all the writings we have by Whitfield are or written by his 24th birthday. So, you know, think of you older folks when you were 24, and all if you, all the history knew was what who you were prior to age 24. You know, it might not be the best. <laughs> Though Whitfield was very precocious in that. So, guys, younger people, older people, let's write. Let's get better at write. Let's use more than 120 characters or 200 and whatever many characters are allowed these days, and let's learn how to write without necessarily having to rely always on emoji, emojis and so on, that we might be able to communicate. So that's my pitch for good writing. Uh, as a matter of fact, even at the seminary, uh, we're a uh, graduate level school, and uh, we decided that uh, we're going to now, um, I mean, we're in the works for that, but require every student to take a writing seminar uh, in the beginning of, uh, of their studies there because some of the stuff we have to grade, you know, <laughs> just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, just leave it, leave it at that. So. But that's, we're not here to talk about writing. But we are here to talk about things we've learned from the writings of other people, especially what history has said concerning the impact of women on the Reformation in the Protestant church Women were mightily used by the Lord to revive his church during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. And it is important that we know that. It's important that God uses all of his people to, to minister to his church. We started in Switzerland last week with Anna 
Reinhardt, sometimes spelled with a T, and Reinhardt. Does anybody remember one, one fact about Anna Reinhardt? One fact. Renee? She can make a grocery budget go far. <laughs> okay, that's good. Maybe implied somewhere in the lesson, right? But yes. Danita? Both of her marriages were in secret. Both of her marriages were in secret, yes. Okay. Sonia? She married, what was the first thing you said? A lord? Yeah, she, he married, she married a nobleman, and then Zwingli. Yes, Mike? Everybody was always at her house. Everybody was always at her house, so she had to have her, make her budget, uh, grocery budget go, go far. Uh, any, any, what else, uh, Scott? Uh, her lasting impact was demonstrated in the life of her daughter. Yes, and her children, specifically her daughter, uh, I think we looked at Regula. Um, yes, Andrew. Bullinger took care of her after her husband's death. Right, Bullinger, uh, Heinrich Bullinger took care of her, and Bullinger was the young pastor who, t- who became the kind of the senior town pastor once, uh, once Zwingli passed away. What else? One or two more things. Katie. She was often very poor because she used her money to educate her children. Right, she, she used, they didn't have a lot of money and used a lot of their money to educate their children. Carol. She was beautiful, right? Uh, that's one of the accusations. I don't know why that would be a problem, but that was one of the accusations that Zwingli married her for her wealth and for her beauty. And he said, not for her wealth, and stopped there. Uh, <laughs> one more thing. Anybody has one more thing about Anna? Emily? She lost Right. In the, in the battle when the Swiss, Swiss army went to fight the French army in Italy, uh, no, that's the, their daughter. But when the French army was coming upon Switzerland, she went and fought. Uh, and law, no, she didn't go, but her family went, and, and her husband, her son, her brother, her cousin, and the son-in-law all died in that one day of battle. Great. So that was last week. Uh, so we started in Switzerland, German-speaking Switzerland. Then today, we're going to move to France and the ancient king of Navarre, it's a king, kingdom that doesn't exist anymore. And we're going to talk about Marguerite of Navarre. And then next week, Lord willing, Nick is, uh, is going to talk about Louise de Coligny, who is also a French woman married to an admiral, a Navy admiral. And then uh, Lord willing, uh, Andrew is going to hop over to England. Oops, sorry. I, I'm, so uh, that's Louise Andrew's going to hop over to England and going to talk about Catherine Willoughby. And then Scott will finish the, uh, the month by going to Germany, Italy and Germany and talking about Olympia uh, Morata. So those are the women that we are considering this month. And as the first slide said, these are important women that we don't know anything about. Most of us had no clue about who these people were prior to our starting our series. And that's a, no, it's good that we're doing that because these are people that we should be aware that we can learn from as we, as we uh, grow in the Lord. Remember, what he, remember Hebrews 11, right? This inspired list of saints have gone before us to be examples of our faith. And remember how t- chapter 12 begins, that, uh, t- telling us there's this cloud of witnesses. Well, these are part of the cloud of witnesses that we can learn from. They're encouraging us to finish our faith looking unto Jesus and running our 
our race looking unto Jesus. If you're going to go to one of the Gospels to look at the impact of women on the life of Jesus, what Gospel would you go to? Not John. Three more choices. <laughs> it would be Luke. Luke is the one that emphasizes Jesus' ministry to the outcasts of society. And women were, even, even if they were in the middle of society, they were considered the margins of society. And the Gospel of Luke notes a large group of women, uh, some well-to-do, some not as well-to-do, including Mary Magdalene, Susanna, and Joanna, the wife of a royal official in Herod's court, who traveled with Jesus. And then in Luke chapter 8, tells us that they supported financially the ministry uh, uh, of Jesus, and also by serving them, and by being with them, and so on, the, per, by, uh, the ministry out of their personal means. We see that also in the book of Acts. Now, who wrote Acts? Luke. All right, so in the book of Acts, we also see... Um, the occasion, several occasions, which affluent Greek women came to faith, most notably of them all would be Lydia, uh, who uh, placed her considerable resources at the disposal of Paul's ministry uh, and then his old team and provided a bridge for the gospel to spread into southern Greece and across Europe. And throughout the history of the church, God has continued to raise up such women of faith who have used their position of influence and power to support the work of the gospel and to promote the kingdom of Christ. We saw last week that Anna Reithard, one, one of the ways that she made a great impact in the church of Jesus Christ by being a faithful wife, a faithful mother, a faithful host for people coming to her house and so on. This week, Marguerite of Navarre is one of those powerful, rich women that are going to contribute to the history of, of the church through her power and through her influence and through her money. And you can see her dates there. What's happening in 1492 in the world? Exactly. Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? Uh, which was, in, in a sense, one of the most, one of the most ill-planned exploratory journey in the history of exploratory journey. Right? They decide to go that way and, and see if that, there's anything to... And when they, so they didn't know where they were going. When they got there, they didn't know where they were. And they didn't know how to come back either. And ta-da, here we are today, the United States of, uh, of America. So she was born in the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, she lived at the crossroads of the Renaissance and the Reformation. Now, this time Renaissance... Uh, means new birth. That's what it means from in the French origin, new birth. What what is refer it referring to when you're talking history about the Renaissance? What we're referring to? Rediscovery of the classics of 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 humanities, and I don't mean like in being a human, but uh, literature and history and and going going back and reading the original sources. And what historical event kind of Catalyzed that, uh, helped that happen. There was uh, something in the East that happened that caused the Western world to go into the Renaissance in the 1450s. The fall of Constantinople. The Muslims, the Ottoman Turks, came uh, and took over Constantinople. 
And all the scholars left. And guess what? They literally carried with them their scrolls. And that's not the furry animal, the, the, the rolled up writing materials <laughs> that uh, uh, from, with them from Turkey, from Constantinople to Europe. And now people start reading the Bible in Greek because they had it accessible to them. They start reading uh, Plato and Homer and all those manuscripts were brought to and a great development in math as well because the, the, uh, the Muslim world was very, very well developed in trigonometry and geometry and so on. And, and because the Constantinopolitans had uh, uh, contact with the, with the Turks, the, the, the Muslims, they brought all that knowledge into Europe, and that was a great revival of, uh, of culture and knowledge and study and academics in Europe. And then there was another thing that had happened in the medieval times that also brought the whole Western world into this idea of Renaissance. What institution was invented in the medieval time. Not the church. The church was invented with Abraham. Uh, the university. The university was invented in the medieval time. Now you have these centers of learning. You have all now all these, these materials that you can use to, be, to learn. The Renaissance, the Renaissance happens at that time. So Marguerite is living at that time, the, the crossroads of the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. There, she, as we saw, she was born the same year as Columbus discovered America or stumbled upon it. Um, most people think now that he arrived where? It's uh, uh, the, the island that today is Haiti and the uh, Dominican Republic. That's where they think that, that's where he arrived there. She was the older sister of a very important man. That's him right there. This is Francis I, a very important French king. If you ever read the Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by John Calvin in 1536, it was the first draft that he sent. There's a 100-plus dedicatory epistle 100 plus pages, dedicatory epistle in the beginning of it, or, or, or a letter of dedication, and is dedicated to this guy. And what Calvin argues in that letter is that, hey, look, if you just pay attention to what the Bible says, you won't be persecuting the Christians like you do, because he was a ferocious persecutor of Christians. And that's her baby brother. So she was the older sister of, of this guy. And then... Eventually, she became a queen herself when she married Henry III, not of England, but of Navarre, and became a, uh, a queen, queen of Navarre. Therefore, that's why she's called the, the uh, Marguerite of Navarre. Uh, she was a true, true Renaissance woman. Uh, she was a poet. She was a playwright. She was a diplomat. She was a cultural leader. She was a royal advisor. She was a... Uh, she sponsored the arts and she sponsored learning. Her mother insisted that she receive the same classical education her brother Francis, which was rare at the time. Uh, she learned Latin, Greek, and Italian and became well-versed in literature, theology, history, philosophy, uh, and other subjects. When she was about 10, um, her parents attempted to arrange a marriage to the Prince of Wales. Now, who... The Prince of Wales is the title of the next, if he's a male, 
of the next heir to the throne of England. So Charles, before he became king now, as Charles III, by the way, there's never been a good Charles king, uh, King Charles in the history of England, so let's see what happens with the third. Uh, before Charles became Charles III, he was the Prince of Wales. So at, when she was 10, her parents tried to get her hitched, or at least promised, to the Prince of Wales, who was at the time, any, 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 any guess? The guy who was going to become Henry VIII. So, yeah, so it fell through for, you know, for her good. That uh, fell through, no. She did not become one of her, his six wives. So it was a good thing that the arrangement fell through there. But it, as it turned out that Marguerite had some connection with Henry, uh, Henry's court because one of Henry's wives-to-be, Anne Boleyn, before she was married to Henry spent time in France as lady-in-waiting to Queen Claude, which was Marguerite's sister-in-law, married to Francis I. And uh, it, from all that we can tell, Marguerite became fast friends with Anne, Anne Boleyn, and uh, helped her expose to her uh, humanist and Reformation ideas. Now, when you think of a humanist idea today, you think of a liberal you think of somebody who looks to human reason instead of to God. That's not how the term is used in history. A humanist is somebody who studied the humanities. They studied classic literature and, and history and so on. So in this friendship, Anne, uh, Marguerite actually exposed Anne to the gospel, to the history of the church, to, to theology. And she took that back to um, Europe to England, and later on, Marguerite sent her a copy of her poem, uh, Marguerite's poem called The Mirror of the, of the Sinful Soul, in which Marguerite th- th- talked about her own personal faith, and uh, so, uh, talked about her coming to know Jesus Christ as her Savior, abandoning her works, and it's still worth a poem to read uh, to this day. And then... Now, God, in his providence, once Anne Boleyn died, remember how she died? She was beheaded, right? Her 11-year-old daughter came to live in Marguerite's court. And now Marguerite has influence over the child, the girl, who is going to become Elizabeth I. And instilled this Reformation Protestant theology in Elizabeth I. And later on, um, Elizabeth even translated her poem, The Mirror, f- to her, for her stepmother, Catherine Parr, who was, who was Henry VIII's last w- wife. So the details are a bit murky, but this link between Marguerite and Boleyn, Catherine Parr, and Elizabeth I suggests that Marguerite had a seminal influence on the early Reformation in England. Now, I know we, all, we, all, we are all experts in Tudor uh, history, right? <laughs> so we had Henry VIII died. Edward VI became king for a very short time. And he became king in name because he was, a, he was a, young, a young boy, sickly young boy. But his regent was Protestant. So great growth for Christian faith in Europe. Edward dies. Then who comes next? The one, yes, the one that some people like to drink for breakfast, right? Bloody Mary became the queen. And then Elizabeth, who had a, one of the longest reigns in the history of the British Empire, 
became the queen, and she had been influenced by this woman who, who didn't think of her, because there's, when, when Marguerite was influencing Elizabeth, there was no um, connection yet that she was going to be the next queen. She just did it because that's what Christians do. They train children to follow the Lord, and there was a great impact uh, there as well. She was a, a true Renaissance woman. She was also a diplomat and a cultural leader. After her brother Francis was, uh, had uh, come to the throne, Marguerite became one of his most trusted diplomatic advisors and host, the hostess of his court because Claude, the wife of the king, was very sickly, so she couldn't host people and so on. So Marguerite took over those functions. And because of that, she was able to spare the life of a lot of Protestants because Francis would uh, kind of say, off of the head, and, and Marguerite would plead with him, no, it's not a good idea, and they would survive uh, in that way. She created a court that welcomed the leading writers of the time, artists and thinkers of the day, and became renowned as a center of culture and learning. And during the same period, Marguerite had been reading the works of the Renaissance humanist Erasmus. Erasmus becomes an important name in two, in two ways. One, Erasmus produced uh, of, of what became a very widespread edition of the Greek New Testament. And, uh, and so that, that's a great contribution. The second one is that uh, he debated with Luther, and uh, in some ways Luther mopped the floor with Erasmus. Uh, if you heard the, game, the book called The Bondage of the Will by Luther, it was in response to a book written by Erasmus called The Freedom of the Will, in which uh, Luther, with his you know, way of speaking, says that Erasmus served dung in a silver platter. That's what the book, according uh, to. But he was one of the leading scholars of the time, and, and Marguerite would correspond with her often, as well as with the Reformation writings of Luther and of Calvin. As a matter of fact, Calvin stayed with her for a while in Navarre after she was married on the way to uh, Geneva. Now, as a French princess, what faith would she be raised, uh, having been raised in? Roman Catholic, right? She was raised, raised in the Roman Catholic faith, but came to sympathize with the Protestant movement and really embrace salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus alone. She promoted the translation of the scriptures into French from the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic instead of the Latin, like was customary at the time. And she did that because she believed that her people needed the access to the unadulterated word of God to find Christ in salvation. It was actually this effort to have the Bible translated into French that caused Calvin to be chased out of town from Paris. Not that Calvin was involved in the translation, but Calvin's mentor, Jacques Lafreve, was involved in that. And because of association, Calvin had to skip town uh, and it ended up in Geneva uh, there as well. At 17, in 15... Now, some of these things, I'm overviewing their whole life, so they don't, don't think that the dates I'm throwing, that everything that I said happened before that. Some of these things are happening in her whole life, okay? But in 1509, she was 17, and she married uh, Charles, the Duke of Alençon. It was a marriage of, polit- of political convenience. Uh, it produced no children. And it's, it is during this time that she comes to know Jesus as her Savior, uh, 17, or during the time that she's married to the Duke of Alençon. 
Um, she was an invaluable aide to her brother, and the two shared a very close relationship. And despite the king's disapproval of her Protestant leanings, he spoke of her with unabashed respect and admiration. Francis said, my sister Marguerite is the only woman I ever knew who had ever, every virtue and every grace without any admixture of vice. It's interesting that the, the, the brother, though he opposed her faith, could see the results of her faith in the daily life of Marguerite and would praise her for that. She was also a master diplomat who was not above engaging in espionage and international intrigue. Eventually, her brother Francis went to war and in Spain, and he was captured at the Battle of Pavia. And he was captured by the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, we've been throwing that, that, that name, Holy Roman Empire. Uh, that's just a description of what, what the time was, uh, the, in essence, Germany, Austria, Spain, some of Spain, and some of Italy. That was what's called the Holy Roman Empire. And often, it's either the, the king the, or the emperor would have a French-Spanish-German uh, connection. And at this time, it's Charles V, the same one that, that Luther discussed or argued um, his writings in the Diet of Worms when he thought he was going to die in 1534 or 32. So... Francis gets arrested, taken captive. Her f- husband is killed during this ba- the battle. She gets on her horse. She rides through the Pyrenees, which is the mountains that divided Spain from France. And in the winter, so by day she's riding horses, and by night she's writing letters, trying to contact everybody she knows to get her husband freed. And to- together with her mother, she negotiated the Treaty of Cambrai, known today as the Ladies' Peace in history to put an end to hostilities between France and the Holy Roman Empire. So not only was she able to free her husband, but she ended the war between the two empires, at least for her lifetime, between the two empires. Any questions before we continue? She's her brother, right? She lost her husband in the same battle and rescued her brother. She didn't have... The husband died. It was not like she left. I'm going to leave him in prison. I'm just going to take my brother. He died in the, in the battle. The brother was in prison because he, it wasn't acceptable to, keep, to kill a head of state in battle. Does it make sense? Yep. Okay. Unless you're a Protestant. I mean, unless the, the head of state was Protestant and the Catholic had no problem killing them. And then she became the Queen of Navarre. That's the, that's the shield of the kingdom of Navarre. Now, after, after the husband died in the Battle of Pavia, Marguerite married... Uh, Henry Dobret, the king of Navarre. Uh, and uh, if you have an idea there, you can see where it is. Is the, is the green, can you see the green there? Between, so this is Spain, Spain right here. This is not where the guy wrote the letter to Mutter and Futter. <laughs> this is the region of Spain at the time that was controlled by whom? Muslims. So the Moors are down, down here. These two houses are brought together eventually by, remember? Isabel and Ferdinand. Ferdinand. And not the bull, but the king. Uh, 
<laughs> and their daughter marries, is the first wife of Henry VIII. Right? So, so their daughter is the mother of Mary, uh, Queen, uh, known as Bloody Mary. So Navarre is right there. That's a mountainous region. That's a Pyrenees, Pyrenees region. Today is divided between Spain and um, France. It is what sometimes we see today, the, the Basque countries. They're always fighting for independence. That's what that is. They, spoke, they speak their own language there, though French and Spanish is also spoken there. So she became queen of that little country, a small mountain nation wedged between Spain and France. And, uh, um, and Spain and France would be often fighting there's this, these two little places where England was um, sovereign over there, but not much. And then she fought, fashioned her court there the same way she had fashioned her court in, in um, Paris, but even with a broader uh, scope. She welcomed leading Protestant thinkers as well as Catholic and humanist intellectuals. At the same time, together with her husband, she instituted social and economic reforms to foster education and provide for the poor. And that, this marriage, she had two children. One died in infancy. The other one became the future queen of Navarre. And uh, we're going to look at her in a minute there. And th- during this time, she, 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 her faith was strengthened. Uh, one of the things she wrote was this, Lord, when shall come that festal day so ardently desired that I shall, be, shall by love upraise and seated at the, thy side the rapture of this nuptial joy that nudes me quite. Now, it's written in French, so the translation is not going to really work as far as meters and so on. But this is something she wrote when she read Revelation 19 and the, the marriage feast of the land. So she's looking for that day in which that will take place. And she used her influence and power as queen to make her small kingdom a haven for Protestant refugees fleeing France and other countries. In addition to welcoming writers and artists, scholars and theologians to her court to discuss the exchange and exchange their ideas, she provided refuge from persecution to John Calvin on the way to Geneva and other leaders of the Reformation movement in France and elsewhere. You may have heard the word uh, Huguenots or Huguenot. Those are the French Reformed Protestants. She, she became their leader and they will be welcomed into Navarre and many were spared uh, during her reign there. And then Calvin, for the rest of her life, kept, kept correspondence with her, uh, and asking her opinions about writings and, and so on. Any questions before we continue? She was also a prolific writer. She wrote poems, plays, short stories, religious meditations, prayers, songs. She was actually the first French woman to compile and edit her own selection um, and, and the first Protestant woman to be published, broadly published, and said that we don't know much about her today because she was a, a great impact in, in our church, in our tradition at least. She, uh, her writings tend to be introspective and mystical, but it, they did reflect her journey through the Reformed faith in her personal relationship with Christ. An example, she says, I see... Um, I see that none other than Jesus Christ is my plaintiff. Now, plaintiff is the one that argues. 
right? The one that in essence complained on your behalf before the Father. He has made himself our advocate before God, offering up virtues of such worth that my debt is more than paid. Uh, the, her poetry flamed gospel theme, framed gospel themes in uh, striking visual imagery. She talks about the Bible being an encased lambskin. Encased in lambskin is the sacred word, embossed with the markings of a deep blood red, sealed with seven seals, may now be heard by those who find that law and grace are wed. So you can see how the gospel is, is intertwined in her poetry and her writings. Her most famous writings, even though I don't think any of us has read it, was that the, the Heptameron, a cycle of 72 tales about a group of travelers modeled after the the Cameron. Anybody ever heard or read anything, uh, the, the, any parts of the Cameron? It's by Boccaccio. Ever heard of the name Boccaccio? Okay. Then I'll skip the next page or so. Uh, <laughs> uh, this was 72 stories, 72 tales about Christians serving the Lord, and it was very theocentric, whereas Boccaccio's writings, which is actually very famous, most people for outside the United States, read it in high school. Uh, it was about, it's very man-centered. Women are always evil in his writings. Men are always good. And uh, that's not the case with uh, her writings. And in her writings, uh, she, because she was so well-known, because she has so much power, uh, her writings brought wide publicity to, to reformed ideas, much to the chagrin of the Catholic authorities in France. For example, her poet, her poem, Mirror of the Sinful Soul, enraged Catholics, Catholic scholars at the Sorbonne. Sorbonne is the University of Paris. Uh, one of them suggested that she should be sewn in a sack and thrown into the river. <coughs> he shouldn't have said that because he ended up dead. Her brother, Francis, said, nah. I know we disagree with her, but I'm not going to say that about my sister and the guy who was <laughs> in a sack in the bottom of the river. <laughs> and then the university had to issue a public apology uh, for saying that at the time. So, all that to come to this, her influence and legacy. Eventually, Marguerite's reformed beliefs and support of the Protestant movement strained her relationship with her brother. And especially with her husband, two, the two of them be, continued to be, be Catholics and became more and more staunch, you know, staunch Catholics. She continued to visit France and intercede with the, her brother on behalf of persecuted uh, Protestants. And her brother still respected her to the point that she, he would, when she was visiting, she, he would suspend all the killings of Protestants you know, in, in her, just out of respect for her. So she tried to visit as often as possible, no jokes, in order to no, at least have a stay on all the, 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 the killings that were taking place there. Um, <clears throat> but as Francis grew more strident in his opposition to, to the Protestant faith, her influence over him began to wane and the persecutions increased, eventually after her death, um, culminating with the uh, St. Bartholomew's a massacre in the 1560s where a, a countrywide operation where the army was deployed to, on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, where all the Huguenots would be in church. 
to attack and kill every Protestant man, women, and ch children that they could. And uh, on that day, thousands and thousands of French Protestants were killed. And to this day, French st France still reels from having destroyed their conscience, their faith. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of the deadest countries in the world for the true Christian faith. And we can trace that back to that, uh, to that massacre that took place there. Uh, despite all of this, Marguerite never broke with the Catholic Church. She never said, I'm not part of this church anymore, preferring internal reform over confrontation. Ever the diplomat and the mediator, she maintained cordial connections with several popes and heads of states, as well as with Protestant theologians and humanist scholars. And that's a characteristic of all reformers. The reformers, they didn't say, I'm out of here. They wanted the church to change, and the church refused. And they were kicked out of the church. Uh, and that's, that's something that we, um, I don't think, uh, often realize, that their desire is for a pure church, not for a new church. And uh, the church refused to listen to, to them. Um, <clears throat> the great Dutch humanist, as I said, Erasmus, wrote this to her. He said, for a long time, I have cherished all the many excellent gifts that God bestowed upon you, prudence worthy of a philosopher, chastity, moderation, piety, and, in, and an invisible strength of soul, and a marvelous contempt for all the vanities of the world. Who could keep from admiring in a great king's sister such qualities as these, so rare even among the priests and monks? So here, Erasmus, who, who never left the Roman Catholic Church, also sees that how her faith was genuine and that she was even more godly than the church leaders, the priests and the, the monks. As a matter of fact, the, perhaps the best summary of Marguerite's life comes from an American historian by the name of Will Durant. Now, Will Durant wrote, I don't know, 12 uh, uh, volumes on the history of the world. He was not friendly to Christianity. As a matter of fact, often, when he could take a shot at the Christian faith, he would. And sometimes he would create things almost to be able to destroy the Christian faith. And yet he says this about Marguerite in, in, in his volume. In Marguerite, the Renaissance and the Reformation were for a moment one. Her influence radiated throughout France. Every free spirit looked upon her as protectress and ideal. Marguerite was the embodiment of charity. She would walk un unescorted in the streets of Navarre, allowing anyone to approach her and would listen at first hand to the sorrows of the people. She called herself the prime minister of the poor. So even those that are super against Christianity can't, can't keep themselves from recognizing the godliness of this woman. Near the end of her life, she reflected, God, I am assured, will, take, will carry forward the work he has permitted me to commence, and my place will be more than filled by my daughter, who has the energy and moral courage in which I fear I have been deficient. And like Anna Reinhardt, we're going to see that one of the great influences she left for the world was her daughter. And we, we discount that. We discount this generational effect that we can have on everything around us. 
our greatest investment is in training our children. Oh, but I have to do this other thing. I'm going to neglect the training of my children so I can do this other thing over here that might be more impactful. No, there's nothing that can be more impactful than the training, the educating of your children for future generations. Her daughter was Jean Dalbret. That's her there. In, interesting, though, that in, she, she went to France to give birth to, to her daughter. And when she was two years old, her brother Francis I took the child away to raise her in, as a French princess. Because Francis had no error. Heir. He had lots of errors, but no heir to the throne. And Jean could be the, the heir to the French throne. So, in essence, he kidnapped Jean in order to be raised in France as a Roman Catholic. Yet Marguerite did not give up on her and influenced her as, as much as possible. But you can see that Marguerite paid a high price for her public faith, perhaps the highest price a parent can, can, can pay. But even then, she did not allow her grief to end her service to the French Reformed Church, and she exercised whatever influence she could over her daughter. It's interesting that her daughter followed the mother's faith, not the uncle's faith. And her daughter would become something of a warrior queen for the Protestant faith. Jean made the, made the, the Reformed faith the official religion of Navarre. So this is what we are about as a country. She spearheaded the translation of the scripture into the Basque language. That was the language of her country. And became the political and spiritual leader of the French Protestant Huguenot um, at the time as well. So... In light of that, um, Marguerite's word seems prophetic when she said, I, I hope my daughter will carry on the ministry that I've had. So we see that Marguerite de Navarre was uh, a prodigiously gifted woman who moved in the circles of power and stood at the crossroads of two major historical movements, the Renaissance and the, and the Protestant Reformation. She was used by God to promote cultural excellence, to defend the faith and to protect those who proclaimed it, but she was also used by God to save an entire generation of Christians. So that, as Psalm 78 says, one generation can receive the word of God from the previous generation and pass it on to the next generation. And that's really one, probably her greatest contribution. The generational influence she had in many Protestants um, so that we can be here today. Any questions about what we discussed or presented here today. All right. So next week, Louise de Coligny, also a French woman, uh, who will teach us some more about faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you for uh, these uh, witnesses that have gone before us and now stand before you, train us as we run our race, looking to Jesus. We pray that we would build upon those who have gone before us. Help us to learn from them. Help us to remain faithful to your word. Help us to invest in the next generation. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.